This week's episode discusses suicide and suicide ideation and may be triggering to some listeners. If you're struggling with suicide or thoughts of harming yourself, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Stay safe. We care about you. Hello and welcome. This is Fred Request. I'm your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 72 with my friend, Arizona Lindsay. Arizona is a country pop artist, an acoustic artist. You know, I don't know if she even likes labels, but she's uh, she was wonderful to sit down and talk with. She has an entire concept album that just came out this year about anxiety and mental health issues and depression. There's runs the gambit and it's a really uh it's really cool story if you like you know listen to it from start to finish just soak in the entire concept and we discuss that at length as well as uh her own interest in mental health and getting an education in that same subject hey that sounds like someone we know this guy you can't see but i'm pointing two thumbs at myself but i'm not going to hold you back any longer check out this awesome interview with my friend arizona Lindsay. You and I have lots in common. My request is sent. Would you like to be my friend? Would you like to be my friend? Hi, it's good to meet you. Yes, same. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. <clears throat> you know, I usually start out with how I know people, and uh, we don't know each other at all, which is <laughs> it's kind of exciting. Uh, and our mutual friend Brimstone, which is just a funny thing to say still, um, is connected us. And I think primarily because, um, well, not only are we both musicians, but you have an active role in the mental health community, which is kind of what the centers around is people's stories and, and overcoming struggles and what that looks like uh, in the mental health world. I know myself, I've gone through a number of things, which I'm sure I'll bring up <laughs> throughout this, but uh, I'm excited to find out more about not only your music, but your active role in that space as well. But uh, if we could, I'd like to kind of go back in time and start out. You're born, you're from uh, Long Island, right? I am. So what's it like growing up in Long Island? I think there there's really big values that from, you know, where the town that I come from, like we value the arts and music a lot and um, that's really all over Long Island. And I think that that's something that I really appreciate as far as the environment, like, you know, it varies town to town, but it is kind of interesting now that I've been off Long Island, realizing that it's not normal to have a beach a half hour away in every direction. So that's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> I live in Michigan, so I am not familiar with that. Did you guys spend a lot of time at the beach, uh, growing up? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you said it was in every direction, right? You just walk out your door and just run into the sand. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you have any siblings, or, or rather, do you have any siblings? <laughs> yeah, I have. A, I have four brothers and a sister. Oh my! <laughs> That's a big family. <laughs> and tigers and lions and bears. Um, yeah, we have. A, I have two older. They're technically half brothers, okay. but you know we're family and. Yeah. Uh, they're in their forties, and uh, then there's my older sister, who's about two years older than me, and then I have two younger brothers. Okay, so you're you're right there in the middle somewhere, the middle. Oh, smack dab <laughs> in the middle of my middle child crisis. You yeah, got it. Yeah, so that's a huge age difference between your older brothers and you, 
Were, did your parents remarry and then have you? Or one of your parents remarry and then have you? You know, I'm, yeah, doing, I'm doing math. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> math is hard. Uh, so what What was, I guess, how many people were in the household then growing up? Because they would have been gone, I'm guessing, by the time you came along. Collectively, there were primarily four of us that at not always the same time, but lived in our house. Okay. Growing up, I mean, with your younger siblings and then your mom, your dad, I mean, what was the, what was the environment like at home? I mean, was any, anything remarkable happening? I, I could dive into some of your song lyrics and make assumptions, but <laughs> I'd love to hear, uh, you know, like, what was that like growing up? I would say that, you know, I'm pretty open about being an adult survivor of developmental trauma. A lot of that did unfortunately come from home but in its entirety i would say you know i grew up taking care of both my younger brothers i think the environment in its good moments could be very family oriented i mean when thinking about me and my brothers you know we're have always been family the values that you learn to hold not just to each other but you know you build a strong value set as a person and an individual and a caregiver so Yeah, that's a. I talked to so many people that take on that role of their younger siblings. And how old were you, do you think, when you kind of were flung into the caregiver role for your brothers? Or when you took that on yourself, at least? Um, I mean, I remember, you know, it was kind of like one of those, like, slow but quick progressions into those, those roles. You know, yeah. like, uh, I guess what I mean by that is there are certain things that I can remember from when my first brother was born and he was a baby and, and things I was held responsible for, especially when things went, you know, wrong. Yeah. That's how it always usually starts. Right. And then you learn, Oh, okay. I'm responsible for that. Uh, cause you, you know, as a kid, you pick on survival cues. So you're like, if I get in trouble for when he falls, that means that I'm supposed to be around before that happens. And so you learn, you know, uh, as a kid, you know, you don't know what the word parenting means. You don't know what caregiver yeah. means. You just know, I need to make sure these things are in line all the time to my best ability. And I think that happened very quickly after he was born. Okay. Yeah. I, that's, I mean, like, so young, that's crazy. Um, but I'm wondering, it's, it's funny. I've talked about this on here before. There's this point in our lives as we get older. Uh, and for me, I mean, it happened way later, <laughs> later than I wish it would have, but where you, you kind of realize your parents are just, people trying to figure shit out the same way that like right now you're just a person trying to figure shit out. Um, but we grow up with this idea that like, you know, they're the existence, like they know what's right and what's wrong. They like, they have all the answers and like, they're kind of these immortal beings that we just look up to. And then we get older and we're like, Oh no, you're just flawed humans. Like the rest of us. Um, how, how, Assuming you have, how old were you when you think you came to that realization? Maybe not in those exact terms, but. Well, I think growing up, I was always taught in the moments when things would get rough, especially with uh, my mom, you know, I would be told by the other adults in the situation, you know, she loves you. She doesn't know how to show you that or, you know, she's sick. And, you know, you learn to kind of internalize that. Um, in different ways, you know, I think I definitely resonate with what you shared, like about, you know, when kids come to this realization that, you know, their parents make mistakes and they're human and, and things like that. I also think a big part of 
trauma recovery for especially complex trauma survivors is actually learning how to undo the mindset that like that mantra can be really helpful for people i think that weren't abused necessarily to the to a certain point i think what can also be like maybe a bit more helpful for some people at least for me what i was taught in trauma therapy was this idea of like they were the adult and i and that was like always the argument because when you are uh and you 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 know i'm sure you know this like it's like when you're a victim for so long you you defend the abuser more than you defend yourself you know and i think you come to this realization at some point in your recovery where you begin to hold people accountable for their actions and you say yes they were sick but they were a parent and yes they were sick but that you know like i have a mental illness and i work very hard to not negatively impact and i'm sure that i do sometimes but yeah. you know what i mean taking responsibility for your own thoughts feelings and behaviors and not holding yourself accountable for others and excusing it because of their mental illness or because yeah. of those other yeah that's uh i i relate to that very much and it's fine i mean it took me shit i'm 38 so it took me a long time to get to the point where you know like i was always defending my mom to my brother and then like i don't know six years ago or five years ago, probably even more recently, I've been able to be like, no, I have two different relationships. I have like my relationship with my mom, my relationship with my brother. And like, she's got her own shit to figure out that impacts all of this. And he's got his own shit to figure out. And like, I'm not, I got to stop being a middle person in all this. Like, I don't know why that's my role. And then the real hard work is learning to forgive that, <laughs> which I uh, yeah, still struggle with. But it's difficult for me to forgive people when they don't take responsibility for their actions, which defeats the purpose of forgiveness. I'm aware it's an oxymoron statement, but it's not though. <laughs> like, you know, I, I actually was processing something really like, like along lines, like fairly similar. And I was saying, um, you know, and, and it doesn't, I mean, if I could speak out to like other people, you know, it's like, you don't know anybody forgiveness for, for what you've been through. You don't owe that to anybody. If you choose to forgive them, then that's because it's, it's best for you. You know, like oh, yeah. there's relationships that like my, my dad who I've written about, you know, where, um, that forgiveness is for me because it's not going to come from external validation of what I've been through. But, um, you know, I've had, uh, on the contrary, like I've had uh, abusive relationships with, uh, you know, my ex-partner, for example, and I've processed in therapy, like, it's actually healthier for me to not forgive this person because yeah. that's all I ever did. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 And I, I, I want to make clear too. I, uh, I don't think I, I mean, me personally, like I don't need to forgive anybody for them. <laughs> that's, yeah, it's always, I, I, yeah, it's, it's, it would be for me. Um, which doesn't make it any easier. That's no, like no, the, no. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah, that's uh, but I, I jump it back. I, I just, sorry, I will, I will take us on many tangents. I promise. Um, <laughs> going back to your, I want, I kind of want to intertwine you playing music, uh, with your experiences. I don't know how early that started, which I'm, I'm curious about, but like for me, you know, that was, that was an outlet and it was also, and I swear to God, if I had a, little banner that glowed behind me it would say external validation you said that i was like yes let's let's talk about that for two hours um <laughs> but especially as a musician like 
a, a songwriter. I mean, but I'm wondering if that, obviously projecting this, but if that was part of uh, what got you into music or if that was something that you just kind of always did and it worked to be an outlet for it later. Hmm. I, I mean, like, when I started like playing and writing, it was definitely for me and just something I was, from when I was a really little kid, I was like, this is what I want to do. Um, even if I, and when I did stray away from it, it was always from discouragement, but I, I don't, you know, and I can't speak to the, to the child that I was. Cause like, God knows what our thoughts are when we're kids all the yeah. time, but I don't ever remember being like, Oh, I'm not good at this. But I do remember being told that a lot and, you know, being told like, you know, uh, from a very young age, you know, it's not something you can make enough money on. It's that you can't support your family with that. You can't, you have to be able to sing if you want to be a singer. Um, you, you don't write good songs. And like, I remember being, I was in like second grade, like, dude, like I'm writing about like the sky and the grass, like, <laughs> like grass is green, the sky is blue. Yeah. And I love you and know nothing about love. And like, you know, I, I think that I turned to a more, um, what I saw as a rational and evidence-based career choice that still involved music at the time, which was education. But I think that when I think of taking the turn into doing it professionally, I, from a self-aware point, would probably agree that there's definitely an external validation. But I think that for me, it comes a little bit more from very weird, specific targets, you know, like when I write the original piece, it's for me. When I produce it, it's for other people. When I'm performing, that's, I think, where I'm learning to try to push away external validation. Because even though it's never been a problem, I could imagine... Like if I was ever in front of a bad, like, you know, uh, not a bad crowd, but if, if there was a crowd that didn't like me, I'd be like, what's wrong with me? Like, why yeah. am I not good? Like, I'm very easily deterred from other people's reactions. And I am definitely working on that a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah I understand that. That's, uh, but that's, yeah, that's got to be a, a strange balance in person, uh, especially at the stage you're at where you're, you know, I imagine what it's when it's not COVID, you're doing a lot of promotion and, and on stage and a lot of crowds that don't know who you are that are learning about you. And I imagine that, that can, that switch can flip pretty quickly in the, in the wrong venue or in the wrong crowd. So it's nice to be aware of that. Good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so you start playing early on. I, I heard in another podcast, you started with drums which is awesome. Everybody, everybody loves a drummer. There's not enough drummers in this world. I'll tell you what. <laughs> I mean, you might be able to speak to that as a, as a, another songwriter. Like I could always get a band together with a bass player and a guitarist. It's like hell finding a drummer. Always terrible. Um, well, man, so. awesome. So I'll be in long Island soon. We can start a cool punk band. Hope that's cool. <laughs> um, what did, what did speaking of punk rock, uh, what does it look like transitioning into your teenage years? Yeah, um, musically, um, my early like tween, if you will, <laughs> I started picking up guitar and piano because originally, when I would write music, I'd write it on uh, on drums and sing. Um, and I had been able to kind of doodle around on like a piano because you know we had one in the house. But uh, I started picking up guitar. My mom had actually. Uh, help me with the first time I was learning that. Um, not much, but 
she did and uh then piano and then you know and then i started really just getting into other things like with symphony orchestras and bands um you know like classical percussion and i loved conducting and all those things you know still to this day play a really big part in my music career and still influence the music i write a lot so cool. it's a big chapter in terms of learning music yeah. what's your social life like at that point in your life um i mean i was in i mean this around middle school um it was challenging i mean like i had a lot of friends but i like many people who um you know, went home to challenging situations. It's like you have a lot of friends, but you don't really get that close to them. Yeah. Um, there's always some sort of barrier that is, you know, and, and you don't consciously know that you're doing that. You just keep people at an arm's distance. And yeah. I think uh, I would get really close to friends and we'd get into, um, you know, this person's dating this person and you're dating this person, like all that kind of stuff. But um, I think all of it, I always kept the drum outside of my house to the best that I could to a minimum because I was like, I just wanted everybody to like me all the time yeah. so that I could get along with everybody and then go home. But I definitely, you know, dealt with bullying and things like that. Um, yeah. So you, you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned a couple times that your, you know, home life, that not the greatest, uh, that, there's some issues with your mom. Is there any specifics that you would like to get into or I don't want to, I don't want to poke and prod in areas that you're uncomfortable with. I just was curious about that. Um, I mean, it's something that, you know, my mom, she really struggled with, um, her ability to care for me at a younger age. And then as I got older, it went from more of a, you know, neglect situations more of an abusive situation and um i mean neglect is abuse uh yeah. it's funny that our brain kind of separates that yeah. but um i think it was like it never felt like trauma to me because it's yeah. normal you know it you know parts of it are wrong and you're like, oh this part's not normal and i can't tell other people this because this and that but but there's a part of you that learns like well this one event is trauma and I can recognize that. And then meanwhile, like other people, when they hear about your home life or things like that, like the details, the things you tell to a close friend um, or a therapist, really, um, there was like, no, trauma is like what you went home to every day. Yeah. But in our brains, we're like, well, there was this one time that like, I guess it got bad, but yeah. other people, they're like, you know. Yeah, I'm a... I'm big into trauma and finding root causes. And are you familiar with the the aces? Yes. Yay. Yeah. I'm like a seven, I think, out of ten. <laughs> and yeah, I, I that I'm going to school to become a therapist. So like, I I'm deeply <laughs> in love with all of this stuff. And love is not the right term, but it's it's very fascinating to me. And it's really funny what people don't recognize as trauma. Like they think it has to be some like extreme thing. I mean, you look at just divorce rates, right? Like divorces up to what, 60% or something now. Your parents getting divorced, messy or not, is childhood trauma. <laughs> like that's, you can check a box off if that is something in your past. And then add in obviously all the big stuff, the uh, abuse and, and substance use and, and alcohol and, uh, it can add up quickly. Um, now I, 
I personally, and I find this with most people that can relate on this level, where you have a traumatic home life, and at times when there's things like not going well at school, as a kid, I mean, those are your two main locations, right? So did you have a, a safe space or a safe thing uh, that, that drew you in? Was that music? Was that something else? Did you have that that you created for yourself? to kind of protect yourself from those environments when you didn't really have a choice otherwise? Yeah, I mean, creative arts were always an outlet for me. Um, around that age, uh, there were still things that my mom was helping me participate in, like acting and, and musical theater. So yeah, music has always been my go-to without even saying. Um, and school, even with everything, was always my safe haven up until mid-high school. But that was that was definitely a safe place for me and i'm a very big advocate in creating a environment in the public education system that is a safe haven for kids because it can be the reason that kids don't want to go to school it could also be the reason kids don't want to go home and so it's like you don't know i mean and the other important factor is too is two people can go through and live in even the same house and not have the same experience you know not every divorce is traumatic for a child it's all about the context and how the child is kept throughout the situation you can have a sick parent and not be traumatized from that you can have a mentally ill parent and not be traumatized from that it all has to do with um the care and safety that the child feels because trauma is a threat to safety so yeah i for me like going to school um even with all kind of the chaos i still felt safe um and that was because i had very um and you might be able to relate to this, but I always was very close with, with adults. It was like I was a more of a friend of my teachers than, or, or tried to befriend them, I should say. You kind of see them as parents in a way because you're yeah. like, oh, they're here to protect me. They won't let bad things happen to me. Yeah. It's kind of black and white thinking, but that's how you are as a kid, yeah. you know? Black and white thinking is how I got through life. Uh, that's, yeah, no, I, I recently had the opportunity to interview two of my teachers from high school who were like, I was close with in high school and they came on my, they're both retired now, which is crazy to think about, but they, yeah, they came on and I got to talk to them and that was, that, yeah, that was our relationship. Like those, I went to their wedding reception when I was like 17. Like I was super close to them just cause they were, you know, yeah, they were adults that weren't <laughs> the adults that I didn't want to be around. What you mentioned, Everything was good until mid-high school. What happens? What changes there? Um, there was um, a more, I mean, in my opinion, one of the more uh, major traumas that had happened when I was in mid-high school that had led to school not being a really safe place for me. Um, what was that? It's something that I would want to write about in the future in music. Okay. So you're keeping it to your chest? <laughs> Are you holding your cards to your chest? I don't share, you know, the details okay. of my because... I think that, I mean, for two major reasons, but the first being, I don't ever, you know, there's obviously vicarious trauma. People who have dealt with trauma can hear things. And sometimes because we're often caregivers or we're taught to really feel for people, um, it's hard for us not to feel the same emotions that they may have felt. And I also feel like in terms of my music, like I try to, my life has been about living in trauma and I didn't obviously really know that but although I'm an advocate for it and I care very deeply about those topics 
I try not to over self-identify with it because there was a point where, I mean, even in recovery, it's like your entire life. It's like you're learning to undo all the things that you were in. And it's like this never ending cycle. And so like learning to build an identity outside of your past is uh, really challenging, uh, especially when you have a trauma disorder and you're still kind of reliving it sometimes. So, yeah. Yeah. That, and that's, that's fine. I don't, the last thing I ever want to do is make any, any guest feel uncomfortable. So that's, I just wanted to ask in case, uh, you know, you didn't want to discuss anything, but all right. You know that I am a fierce advocate for therapy. All right. Let's face it. This whole show does not exist without the leaps and bounds that I've been able to make in therapy. And that's why I am so proud to have better help sponsor this show. Ask yourself this question. Is there something interfering with your happiness? Or is, is preventing you from achieving your goals? You know, I've spent time in therapy learning to rein in my need for external validation, and it's a big need. Uh, but BetterHelp will assess your needs, match you with your own licensed professional therapist, maybe even me one day. Uh, and there is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's like 15,000 plus counselor network. That's a lot of counselors, which may not be locally available in many areas. You know, they did a whole report on this. And it's available for clients worldwide. So when you sign up, you can start communicating within 48 hours. And then if you're like me, you know, are you getting those random light bulb moments like I do? You're laying in bed and you're like, oh, uh, well, with BetterHelp, you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule your weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room with traditional therapy. And guys, I know that waiting room awkwardness. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. No more awkward therapist breakups if you and your counselor aren't a match. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit BetterHelp.com slash friend request. That's BetterHelp and join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for my friends out there, my friend request listeners, if you will. You get 10% off your first month of counseling when you visit BetterHelp.com slash friend request. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash friend request. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. When do you start then? Because you're still, what, your early 20s? Mm-hmm. Was, yeah. When did you start actually like publishing some of your stuff and performing it live? How old were you when you started getting on stage with a guitar? I started performing pretty much right after I started learning guitar. Okay. <laughs> because I, I had already been singing. I had already been like performing on stages for musical theater and acting. And so I was just like... I want my guitar up on a stage and I started doing open mics nearby. And, um, when I started doing it professionally, um, that was within the last like two years I had started playing shows and I, I think I just continued to do that, but I came out with my album, the castle you built me, um, in July of 2018. Uh, so I'd been working on the creation of that album for the year prior and honestly, I never imagined myself even like releasing an album like like with those songs. But a lot of those songs I actually wrote when I was like 13, 14. Yeah. Tony, um, who helped produce my first album, 
he used to come to the open mics when I was a kid. So he was like, I'll record you. Like, let's do this. And so that's kind of how that happened. So 13, 14, when you were writing these songs that went on that album, was that when you said you were going to open mics, like how old were you when you started doing open mics? So fascinated by this. This is because I think that would freak me out at a certain age. <laughs> Sixth grade, so probably okay. twelve. Yeah, I was still I was still awkwardly singing to girls in gym class in sixth grade. <laughs> I got on stage when I was like wow. sixteen. Walk me through, I mean, open mics and stuff before you're before you're making an album and and recording. I mean, that's it. The open mic stuff I feel like is relatable to a lot of people, right? Like, whereas being in a studio, um, I mean, that's a unique experience. I definitely want to talk about. But what is that prior to that? Like what? Are you getting anything that would resemble fans or are you just getting your friends are supportive and that's about it? Like, what does that look like for you? I mean, it's a little bit of both because I was, I would return every week and you make supports and you support other musicians and, um, you know, you, you make friends that way and they, uh, yeah. And then, and then there were some performances that I would do. I remember, you know, uh, in early, like ninth grade, I remember doing a performance at the place that I used to do open mics at, at the time. And I did like an actual like two, my first two hour, three hour performance. Mm-hmm. And um, it was definitely three hours because I remember <laughs> I didn't know that I could take breaks. And I was like, I was done on stage. And like the guy came up to me and he's like, you know, you can like sit down and have some water. And I was like, uh thank you so much like how much does that cost like i just (laughs) um but yeah like my friends from high school at the time i was a a little freshman so you know all the juniors and seniors that i was in marching band with they would come and watch me play and support me and um my mom even came down a lot um you know just to see me playing and um it was definitely like a mix of building people in both of those ways yeah so you get the opportunity to record that first album what is that like being in a like a recording studio for the first time my first album it was fun it was a little nerve-wracking because I he made me um he was like okay I want you to come in on a Monday, like we went over all like the terms. He showed me how like the studio works and everything. And then he was like, okay, so when you come Monday, you're going to bring every song you've ever written. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) that's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Like, are you sure? And I like bluntly looked at him in the eyes and I was like, they're kind of like not happy. And he was like, I figured that. Um, Like I've heard you fine. And I was like, okay. So I brought them with me and he actually had me play like a small piece from each song. Um, It wasn't every song, but like, cause you know, some of them I was like, no, trust me, (laughs) no. There are some that I declined to work on because of how personal or how much detail it describes. Because, you know, when I was writing them initially, I wasn't ever imagining other people would really hear them or at that time I had songs that were about suicide ideation. I had songs that were um, about questioning if like the rest of my life was going to be about self-harm and things like that. And um, 
I ended up, one of the songs that I would say kind of really represents the other songs that I had written at the time was, uh, there's a song on the album called The Rooftop Song. And it's uh, about someone uh, taking their life. And the concept of the song sounds, I think, really, really dark. Um, even when you listen to it, but the underlying message is that it doesn't need to end like that. Nothing should end like that. And if we understand and actually pay attention to each other and look for the signs in each other of what depression and anxiety looks like, then it doesn't have to be that dark. And the the song initially, um, not to go off about it, but when I first wrote it, wasn't the structure that it is now today. It was a song about me speaking in a third person, which is very dissociative, um, but you know, saying she and her instead of me and I, um, and speaking about someone really contemplating suicide and really struggling and feeling like no one was noticing and being upset about that, but yet never actually telling anybody what I was thinking or doing or struggling with, um, in fear that something would happen to my brothers, that they'd be taken out of the house. You know, everything was to protect other people yeah. and never me getting help. Um, and then when I went to go produce the song, I was working with my co-producer on my first album at the time, Christine Sweeney, and she had said, you know, you have to finish the storyline. Does this person do it or do they not? And we sat on this for like an entire songwriting session, and I finally just said, yeah, I think that they do in the song, and the concept should then be changed to this idea that all of these signs were there and, and we can do something because this is just a story and it doesn't have to be real life. Yeah. So. That's a, I, you mentioned something that I, I'm real curious about just as a, as a songwriter, um, the, the, the writing in third person, I'm like, yeah, I know that. I know, I know how that works. Uh, and you know, you do it sometimes to protect yourself, sometimes to protect other people. Um, sometimes cause like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to write a song where I'm like, I want to kill myself and then give it to people. And then they're, you know, then people react. I wrote a song last year called I hate myself. And it's not like I had to tell everybody, like my wife, I was like, listen, I'm fine. I just like, listen to the song. Isn't this good? <laughs> That's like the epitome of every songwriter's life. Yeah. It's like having to like disclose after like, I'm okay. <laughs> so, you know, Yeah, it's like, if I didn't write this, I'd probably be worse off, but I wrote this. So I'm good now. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you find yourself still censoring yourself in that way when you're writing? Yeah. Is that something that bothers you? Because you answered very quickly. <laughs> okay. Well, like, I think the censor comes from two different places because maybe three. Because, like, the first is being careful not to do what was referred to me in my first album as called. Um, uh taking jabs and um when i was producing my first album there were there were a few songs that were written close to the actual release of the album uh, that i had added and replaced other songs with which is uh for example triple j um uh, uh our favorite place back then so there's this um there was this theme where every once in a while i would try to say something and my uh, co-producer would be like, you know, that's that's a jab. Like, you can do it, but that relationship's never going to happen again if they hear this. And, um, like, I think one of the original lines in Triple J 
was something something too but triple j knows the real reason that you left is because you're too depressed to know i'm good for you like something like that and i just remember changing the lyrics to focus on myself and trying to make a commitment like this isn't about other people this is about what my experience was and i even went as far as to change like one of the lines in that song from watching you scream at me changed it to watching me fight with you and just like something as small as that because you know i was obsessed with this idea that i mean i gaslight myself like you know maybe this is just my perspective and now i don't censor those types of things but i do censor certain details that might hurt other people um where that's not it's not necessary or for my own liability sometimes you know not wanting my some of my fans are very I'm, I'm still a small artist but i do have some fans that are very dedicated to what i do and i wouldn't want quite frankly i don't need to be responsible for like them being like whatever and um the 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 speaking in third person is definitely a protective factor i mean that's the that's why dissociation exists but it's really funny i never thought about this till recently my song on my new album the process um attempt to love me which was originally called safe um at the very end of the song switches from first person to third person and i didn't i didn't pick up on that yeah <laughs> for some reason like you know and i've gone through the lyrics so much you know when i was pre-production production like everything and nothing in my brain was like that's weird that you started talking in third person and now that i'm diagnosed with a dissociative disorder i'm like that's why <laughs> the shoe fits yeah. <laughs> yeah like okay you know to me it was just a songwriting style and now yeah. i realize i do it in my head where i say you or um she instead of i um it's usually in, in a negative self-talk way um which is unfortunate because it means that you've really internalized the messages from other people but to hear that come out in my songs sometimes is in a very weird way interesting, I guess, if you're psychoanalyzing yourself. Yeah. But that's, uh, and, and since you brought your album up, I mean, I want to transition over to that because uh, I, I I will be full disclosure. I am not a big country person, um, but the, the acoustic singer-songwriter part of it, uh, I can obviously like really get into and relate to. Um, and you're songwriting seems to follow kind of a, a narrative style i mean even the the suicide ideation uh, stuff and everything you've talked about already is it's a storytelling piece right so and the album you know it starts off with the song about your mom right and then uh goes into anxiety which I, i've listened to a few times just because i'm like i love it it's so it's so tongue-in-cheek and i and it's just fantastic uh so i was that planned? Do you recognize you write in that narrative style? Is that your preferred style? Um, and then was there a plan behind the order in which you put that all on there? Yeah, so um, the narrative style, I think, just always came very naturally. Um, and it's also something that I've picked up from people that have inspired me, like Taylor Swift. Um, and there's definitely that in um i become more aware of it as i learned the ins and outs of songwriting um which is you know an ongoing learning process um but also you know in studying um particularly the song anxiety 
that song was fully inspired by going deep diving into narrative counseling theories and understanding the idea of externalizing the issue. And actually went home with a commitment to myself to write a song to what I felt was stopping me from leaving my house. Um, And that was before I was even diagnosed with CPTSD, but I was able to recognize that the anxiety was coming from somewhere and that it seemed to be the only thing that I could identify with anymore. And I went on to, to write a full song about it. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, no, I, I like, I like how it's written. I like, like just the kind of story it tells. And like I said, it feels a little tongue in cheek, but in the, in the best way. Um, so yeah, great work. Uh, and then, Thank but you. the, uh, I heard you talk about, uh, recently the, what is the song? Um, the sinking ship and the placement of that on the album to make sure that it was kind of in the middle and not, you know, not, not like, and there's nothing after this sort of metaphor. Can you speak more to that and, and the song itself and why you put it there? Absolutely. Yeah. So the sinking ship is broken into two uh, pieces, as you can hear. Um, there's a small piece of an instrumental that happens and then a very similar play on perspective, but from a different pair of eyes. And, um, that is supposed to be a representation of um, that instrumental is a representation of the immediacy of what was my hospitalization um, and basically forced to make a decision of which direction I was going to go. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, you get released from a hospital and you're back to the same triggers, you're back to the same environment. And at the time, I was just getting out of uh, the emergency hospitalization and going. And I was technically on a suicide watch for, for four to six weeks. I can't remember. So I uh, had a just, I think I had written, written initially the second part as more of an aspirational. Um, this is how I hope that I can feel. But also, I when I made the decision to go into the production of the album, I realized that I initially didn't even want to produce the song. Uh, I thought that it would cause people to fetishize off of something that was dark and horrible. And I realized that that was my choice if I wanted the song to end there. And that is why now it's a five minute piece. It's, it's something that, um, you know, when I first got to trauma uh, treatment, I think after the first week of actually settling in and, you know, not engaging in, in self harm and eating for the first time in months and, really sitting with my therapist, he turned to me at the end of the session. And to this day, I remember he was like, you know, if you're going to get better, we're going to have to take suicide off the table. And I laughed in his face. Hmm. And like, if you knew me, I'm just, I'm not that type of person. Like, I'm not like, I mean, I can be rough around the edges sometimes, but I laughed in the dude's face. And I was like, this old white guy is going to try to tell me that like, you don't know what's wrong with my brain. My brain is created to self-destruct. Like I was convinced that there was no way out. And he said, he, he didn't even laugh back. He was just like, I hope that you will consider it. Mm-hmm. And I, in my head, I was actually mad. And I was like, how could you think that this is my choice? That my brain decided that this is the choice, not me. And I think that I still agree with that. I think that that's the disorder though. And you know, it doesn't have to be your whole piece. It's part of it. Yeah. And I uh, wrote the other half of the song while I was in treatment 
and kind of used it as my anthem to get through the rest of it. That's beautiful. And I, I, it's amazing how you, you said that and you kind of brushed past it, but I want to reiterate what you said is my brain is making that decision, not me. And then you said, I think it's part of the, the, uh, like the dissociative, right? Like, cause you're, you're creating you're you're saying, Oh, this other piece of me is not me. Uh, when, you know, in reality, like, here we are. And <laughs> to have the self-awareness of both recognizing the the illness mixed with the, like, the reality of it is, is pretty remarkable. So good on you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I think also with the, the dissociative factor, too, is I think the dissociation is honestly this idea that there are separate parts of ourself but also like everybody has separate parts of self it's normal and it's when they become so fragmented that they can't communicate that's i mean ego states theory 2.0 it's like my you know but like (laughs) it's when they become so fragmented that they can't actually communicate with each other and so you have this fragmented part of self that's saying i'm hurting so much that i want to do this and your other parts of self are only feeling the outcome of that it feels like, you know, this is something completely um, just built within me. Um, and I think the dissociative part is them not being able to communicate. And the, like you said, the self-awareness part, also education and mental health, which comes from being in treatment or seeking that outside of that, is really being able to say from a narrative perspective, again, it's just the type of therapy I think helps a lot with uh, complex trauma, but is being able to say, like, this is a separate part of self it's not who I am it's what I was taught and the worth that I was taught and the self-esteem I built because of those experiences but um that's just the guard around the ego state that's not actually what my body would want it's, yeah. you know if you're sitting at a table with your body your body is not going to be like please hurt me it's going to be like why are you doing this <laughs> yeah <laughs> um that that's kind of just to stay on this road I, I want to segue over into the, the mental health stuff and I mean, obviously, you, you've spoken about a number of things that you've gone through, and uh, you talked about the hospitalization. I, I believe I heard on another podcast, too, that you segued coming out of that right into recording the album and getting into the studio uh, with the process. And that album in itself is kind of is a pretty big statement on mental health and some of the disorders that are more common every day that we find, you know, as, as the more we learn, the more we're like, oh, okay, like... <laughs> um, so where are you uh, at within that community? Um, you're, you're very outspoken in that area, and I'm wondering like what you're doing, uh, what, what are your passions around there, and how do you how do you want to help and how are you helping right now? Yeah, so um, I have been advo- an, a mental health advocate from job title to self-proclaimed title, um, meaning, you know, I literally took a job doing mental health advocacy when I was in my early college as my bachelor's and um, my undergrad is in forensic psychology. I had always talked about it. I always made it a point to, even on my first album, try to bring it to light. Um, I knew that I had some mental health issues, um, but I never thought that they were an extension of anything I'd been through. I thought my brain was just genetically effed up and when I 
went through treatment and I was learning how to create an idea. I mean, I had no, no interest when I, by the time I went into treatment, I had no interest in any type of future. I did not want to continue in anything. And at the time I was on a leave of absence from grad school. I, and to, to attend treatment and it was just one big mess. And coming out of that, I really just had to make a decision of like, what do you, what do you want out of life? And I realized the only way that I feel like I can make meaning of what I've been through is to really be there for other people and even intervene early enough or, and, and sometimes that in my brain is through education. Sometimes that's through actually working in the mental health field. And so I went back to grad school, um, I am currently on a leave of absence right now, focusing on my music, but I've completed two out of a three-year grad program in clinical mental health counseling. Oh, nice. And, and yeah, I my passion is definitely any type of mental health stigma, discrimination, all the way to just being a peer in the community. And I started doing some kind of sponsorships-like stuff where um, kind of like AA, how they have um, a sponsor – uh, it was something that actually originated my therapist's idea at the treatment center of having a trauma sponsor. And though I was never really able to have a one that had that label, that's something that I've pursued with other people that have uh, reached out to me. I like that. That's really cool. And that's, uh, I, I'm glad that you found that, that passion so early on too. Are you doing, cause you said clinical too. So are you doing like the full, I don't know how, how it is in New York. Um, do you have to do like a thousand hours and all that it's, good stuff? It's different, you know, for there's hours for practicum, uh, and then internship and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but you know, uh, it's definitely, I'm going to be changing universities when I do return, uh-huh. um, to school. So probably this, this upcoming year just to finish. I mean, I'm so close to finishing. Yeah. Um, but I plan to use my, my master's education to continue to help people uh using public education of mental health because i just think that it's it's very unfortunate that someone would need to attend treatment to even learn about what they're dealing with you know a lot of the time when i even post something on social media as silly as that sounds i'll get a message here and there that just says like i didn't know that i had an eating disorder till i watched your video about you and then i brought it up to my therapist and I said, I watched this video and they, they shared with me that they, they actually showed their therapist the video and they're like, I, what she's talking about, like, I do that. And the therapist's like, yeah, no, that's, that's not normal. Like, and so sometimes it's just interesting that we normalize something as silly as like, you know, we talk about diet culture, but we don't really talk about, you know, how much that's internalized to a point where we actually just consider it normal when someone's not eating, where they're eating not a lot, where they make a comment like, oh, I don't need that extra slice of pizza versus like, um, okay, well, what did you eat so far today? Because was it just that pizza? Because like, you know, like that type of concern and um, putting out those types of videos and education and being able to back that soon, hopefully with a, a master's degree is important to me, not just for the credibility of what I'm saying, but more importantly, being able to actually speak from uh, a perspective of somebody who has been fully through that education, and I'm not quite there yet. So I, I try to speak from a, I always say this in the beginning of my videos, like I speak from a peer perspective and an academic in the mental health community. And my goal would be to bring uh, something that people wouldn't normally charge a lot of money for completely just public. 
for yeah. people. That's really awesome. That's, I mean, you're, you're checking all the boxes of things people should put into the world, which is music and <laughs> awareness around mental health. <laughs> um, but I, I really, I really admire all the stuff that you're doing and I'm, I'm so excited for it to continue and for your, you're able to get out or do you have shows planned? Yeah, I do. So, um, as of right now, actually one of the non for profits that I am working, they have a show that they're a big benefit concert. They're going to be doing in Vegas at the end of the year, which is like awesome. super awesome. And they've invited me to rethink stigma. Um, and I have other shows coming up. I try to post them on social media when I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah, that, I mean, that's awesome. And, and your album is available everywhere. People can find you at Arizona Lindsay Music, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and yeah, if you have if you have a mailing list or something where you can keep me updated with that, feel free to throw me on there because I would love to stay informed with what you're doing. But I, I want to thank you for doing this and coming on and talking about uh, everything. I, I think we ran the gauntlet. <laughs> Is there anything we missed you wanted to mention? No, I mean, I would just say... Um the album, the process, it's a concept album for, as we were kind of talking about with the sinking ship and everything. And for anybody who has been through a mental health struggle or um, knows somebody close to them, I think that the album might really resonate with them regardless of genre preference. And um, and I wanted to say before, just congratulations on your, your getting into your grad program. And that's well, so amazing. Thanks. Doing. Yeah, it's I'm I'm excited and also like oh no a lot of school. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a half and half. But yeah, I'm I'm excited about the end result and that is the the motivation there. Um, uh, well, awesome, Arizona. It was wonderful meeting you and and talking to you. On awesome, Arizona. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for going over a little with me and have a great time. Bye. And I have lots in common. My request is sent Would you like to be my friend? Would you like to be my friend? All right, you just listened to my interview with Arizona Lindsay. Such a great conversation. Uh, we just talked about so many subjects that I'm so passionate about and her work as a mental health advocate and getting the word out there and normalizing uh, things that have such stigmas around them uh, from just her social media to working with nonprofits and her album, the process, you guys need to check that out too. It's really great. I really appreciate Arizona doing this and shout out to Brimstone for hooking this up. I don't even know if he's going to hear this episode and I don't know if you even know who that is, but look online. I bet you'll find him because Brimstone you crazy. All right, guys, I will talk to you next week. Thanks so much for listening.